Good morning. How are y'all? Trust that y'all had a, a good week. If, uh, if this is your first time here, welcome. Thank you for, uh, for coming to our, our systematic and theological exploration of the person of God. And if it's your second week, uh, welcome back. Before we dive in, it has come to my attention that it was someone's birthday yesterday, our, uh, our own Pastor Peter. And so can y'all, can y'all join me in singing happy birthday to Pastor Peter? All right. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Peter. Happy birthday to you. All right. Pastor Peter, thank you for being here on your birthday weekend. Let me open us up in prayer and we can dive right in. Lord, we come to you this morning with uh, gratitude, Lord, that you have given us your word, Lord, and you've given us a church to study uh, your word with. Lord, be with us this morning. Lord, open up our, our eyes, soften our hearts, Lord, so that we may receive from your word what it is that you would have us receive. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to start this morning by quoting a well-known theologian of our day, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> Oprah says, spirituality for me is recognizing that I am connected to the energy of all creation, that I am a part of it, and it is always a part of me. Whatever label or word we use to describe it doesn't matter. Words are completely inadequate. Spirituality is not religion. Very profound. Now, I'm not entirely sure what Oprah means by any of that, um, but we can be certain that this is not biblical. And in fact, when someone talks about themselves being spiritual, what do they typically mean? They typically mean, I'm going to create a God in my own image after my own likeness, and we end up worshiping a God that looks just like us. Now, before we criticize Oprah that too much, I think it's easy for us to do this as well, isn't it? It's easy for us to create a God of our own liking rather than the God of Scripture. But that is not what we're going to do this morning. God has revealed himself to us. He has not left us in the dark. I said last week, that God has primarily revealed himself to us in three different ways. Number one was through his son. Number two was through what he's created in the world. And then number three was through his word. And it's this, this morning we're going to spend time looking at this last revelation of God, the revelation of, of himself in his word. Before we dive in, I want to do a little bit of a, of a trivia question. Now, Pastor Peter, I think, would have me call on someone. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to throw the question out to see who is, is willing to answer this. So last week I said that systematic theology does two things. Who can tell me what those two things are that systematic theology does? Systematic theology does two things. What are those two things? All right, we'll take it. It answers questions 
and it organizes answers. And the answer, it answers questions about what the Bible would tell us about any given biblical topic. So we're going to continue on in that same vein this morning. We're going to look to answer, what does the entire Bible teach us about itself? What does the Bible teach us about the Word of God? So this morning, I want to look at with you four things every believer must know about the Word of God. And I'll list them out, and then we'll take them each in turn. Number one, when the Bible speaks, God speaks the authority of the Scripture. Number two, when the Bible speaks, it is never in error, the inerrancy of the Scripture. Number three, the Bible is not optional, the necessity of the Scripture. And then number four, when the Bible speaks, it is always enough, the sufficiency of the Scripture. Well, let's look at that first one then. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. What does it mean to say that Scripture is our authority? Well, Grudem gives us this helpful definition on page 62. He says, The authority of Scripture means that all the words in the Scripture are God's word in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So to disbelieve the Bible is to disbelieve God. Now, why is that the case? What is this authority rooted in? Well, I'd like to take a uh, look at two uh, key passages that root the authority of God's word. The first is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a, a well-known passage on this topic. And we're going to pick up in verse 16. 2 Timothy three sixteen. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this is a key passage that often accompanies what's called the doctrine of inspiration, that God has inspired the text of scripture, that he has breathed out the scriptures. And the Bible uses this language of God breathing in many other categories. For example, Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He breathed life into Adam by his breath. The idea here is that that which is in God, he is imparting to us. He breathes out life in the same way that you and I breathe out as we speak. So what Paul is saying is in the scripture, what we have are words that have their very origin in God. That's why the Bible is authoritative. Now, just an important note. It's important to note here that the scripture itself is what is inspired or God breathed. Sometimes we can speak of uh, Paul was inspired to write Ephesians or Matthew was inspired to write his gospel. But that's not what Paul gets at here. Paul says that scripture itself is breathed out by God. And so inspiration is not primarily a property of the authors of scripture, but of the text itself. God ensured that the end product of the Bible would be fully intact. Let's look at uh, one other passage on the authority. Second Peter chapter one, and we'll look in verse 16. And if you have your, your Bibles, you can open there uh, with us. Second Peter chapter one. We're going to start in verse 16. 
Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's, what's Peter saying? We didn't just pick up folklore along the way. The message that we heard is not cleverly devised myths uh, about the coming and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw the transfigured Jesus. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So just to pause here for a second, what Peter is saying, we're delivering a message to you. We're delivering the gospel message. And we didn't just pick this up by hearsay. We witnessed the risen Christ. We saw the Lord God speak down and bestow honor and glory onto his son. And we're delivering that to you. But then Peter does something interesting here. Do you ever have it where you're telling a story and then someone else tells almost the same story, but their version's a little bit better than your story? They, they kind of one-up you a little bit. So, you know, my family, we, we went hiking Mount Everest. Somebody's like, oh, we did the same thing, except we had, a, you know, a family of goats on my back and we were carrying all my kids. It's always something ridiculous and just a little bit more. Well, I want to draw our attention. Peter actually one-ups himself in this passage. He's saying, look, I did see it, I did hear it, and I'm delivering this to you, but my eyewitness is not why you have confidence in this message. What could be more uh, sure than someone seeing and hearing God himself? Well, let's see what Peter tells us in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will all do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Let me pause there. Peter's recanting of recounting of his story of seeing Jesus. That's still Peter's own interpretation, isn't it, of the events? He's saying, we saw this, I heard this, and that's great that Peter was an eyewitness. But what we have is even more sure, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying the message that's being delivered to you, don't just take my word for it, even though I saw it. The message that's being delivered to you is so sure because the Holy Spirit has carried these men along. When the prophet spoke, the Holy Spirit carried them along to uh, guard their words from error. And the Spirit safeguarded the prophecies by carrying along men as they spoke these prophecies. The scriptures are somehow both fully the words of man, all their personalities, their background, how they use grammar, but then fully and ultimately they're the words of God. Now, what does this mean for authority? How does this give us the authority of the Bible? Because the Bible is God's very word, the biblical authors, interestingly, don't draw much distinction between the words of God and God himself. Now, that feels a little strange to say because the Bible is not God himself, but the biblical authors seem to blur the distinction between God's word and God. So as the Bible judges... God judges. As the Bible illuminates, God illuminates. As the Bible admonishes, God admonishes. As the Bible reigns as the authority over our lives, God reigns as the authority over our lives. 
God's word is not something separate from God, but it, it is his expression of himself to us. I think I have in your outline Psalm 138, verse 2. This is the psalmist's perspective on this. He says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Now, it would be blasphemous to put anything else alongside God's name to be equally as exalted with God himself. Yet the psalmist places God's word in equal standing with God. I'd like to take another uh, look at a key aspect of the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture means uh, not only that if we disobey it or violate it, we disobey God, but it also means that all other authorities sit under the authority of Scripture. Because God is the highest authority, Scripture is the highest authority. Everything else must answer to God's word. Now, this was the major issue in the Protestant Reformation, wasn't it? It was an issue over authority. Uh, a co-worker that I worked with who is Roman Catholic asked me uh, on Friday, very conveniently timed for the talk this morning, he said, can you explain to me the difference between Catholicism and what you believe? And I said, it can be boiled down to one word. The issue is authority. Who has the ultimate authority? Is it God and his word or is it the church? I'd like to look at an example that spells out Jesus' own understanding and view uh, of the scripture's authority. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We should be familiar with this passage. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now let me just pause there. Jesus was very hungry, and so Satan appealed to Jesus' senses. How did Jesus respond? He didn't appeal to Jewish tradition in his response. He didn't even appeal to a spoken word of God, and he certainly could have, and that would have been perfectly fine. Rather, he appealed to the written words of God. It is the written words of God that act as a unique and supreme authority. And look at verse 5, how Satan responded. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan knew that the only way he would have any traction or appeal with Jesus is to appeal to the very same high standard that Jesus appealed to. And so Satan abandoned his previous method and said, Okay, if Jesus thinks the Scripture is the highest authority... I need to do the same thing. So Satan said, it is written. This is why the psalmist says that his name and his word be exalted above all things. Just as a practical question before we move on to the next question, and I have to ask myself this, do we treat the Bible as though it is our final authority in all areas of our life? That's, that's the tricky part. It's, it's nice to know it is an authority, but when it comes clashing against things that I believe preferences, 
attitudes, behaviors? Do I actually sit under the authority of the Bible? Okay, number two, the second thing that every believer must know is that when the Bible speaks, it is never in error. This is the inerrancy of the scripture. And Grudem gives us this definition on page 85. He says, the inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So because the Bible is without error, it is completely trustworthy and reliable. The list a few verses here that the Bible claims about itself. Psalm 12:6 says, "The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times." It's very pure. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, "Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him." John's gospel famously Jesus said that the words of God, the scripture can never be broken. Why are we talking about inerrancy? If, if the Bible is God's word, isn't it sort of implied or assumed that the Bible would have no error? The last hundred years or so, there has just been an increase in the scrutiny and attack for people attempting to undermine God's word. And so many systematic uh, theology textbook will have in them an entire section that just deals with issues of inerrancy and alleged errors in the Bible. I think it's helpful that we work through some of these because I think some of these are going to be helpful just as we're reading our own Bible. How do I properly interpret the Bible? How do I understand specific words? So let me, let me look at just a few of these with you this morning. Number one, normal human language often is not precise, but it can still be truthful. And isn't that true? We, we don't often speak in uh, a very tight precision in everything that we say. But no one's calling us out, nope, liar. That's not, that's not exactly true. No, we, we have flexibility. So the Bible speaks of things like the sun rising, the rain falling, which technically is not true, right? And so you could have the critic of the Bible say, look at all the errors in the Bible. It, it, it thinks that the sun is actually rising. Does it not know Earth's rotation around the sun and the way that that works? Well, this wasn't what the authors were intending to communicate. They were using language from their own vantage point in the same way that we do. In fact, if you open up your weather app on your phone, it has a time for sunrise and sunset. We're not filing uh, suits against the Weather Channel for, for peddling falsities to us. The next thing is that the Bible uses approximations for numbers. And so if the Bible says that 23,000 men died in battle, it might really be 22,285 men that died in battle. So the limits of truthfulness depend on the intended precision by the speaker. I think this is very, very helpful because as we read the Bible, one thing, let me, let me say this. <clears throat> a lot of evangelicals will say that the Bible is to be taken literally. Don't we say that? I, I want to uh, recommend maybe a little bit more careful way to say that because our critic could take us to the Psalms and point out a whole list of passages that we don't take literally. So what's the best way to say this? I think we can say that the Bible is to be read naturally, right? Naturally as the original author intended his original audience to hear. And that changes. We've got Greco-Roman biography in the Bible. We've got history. We've got poetry. We've got apocalyptic literature. And all these things have, within their own genre, various ways to read and understand it. So we want to be careful that we don't just force a wooden literalism on every aspect of the Bible where it's not intended. We'll get ourselves into these binds. Grudem says, it should not trouble us then 
to affirm that the Bible is absolutely truthful in everything it says and that it uses ordinary language to describe natural phenomena or to give approximations for round numbers when those are appropriate in context. Inerrancy has to do with truthfulness, not with the degree of precision with which events are reported. Number two, a key point to consider is that differences are not necessarily contradictions. There can be differences that are not necessarily contradictions. Uh, A very popular one that will be brought up is how many angels were at the tomb uh, of Jesus' resurrection. Well, according to Matthew, it says an angel of the Lord came down. Mark's gospel says a young man dressed in white. Luke's gospel says two men in dazzling apparel. John's gospel says two angels in white. So which is it? And critics will say, well, it just depends on what gospel you read. Your gospels don't align. They're very, very confused. So the key point here is that differences are not contradictions. And if you take a family on vacation and you ask the family to, rec- uh, to recall exactly what happened, you're going to get what may appear to be contradictory statements, but are not. They're just different perspectives on the exact same event. A contradiction would be if it said there is one angel at the tomb and there is not one angel at the tomb. Do we see the difference? That's a contradiction. It's when one statement logically cancels out the other statement. Now, ironically, rather than uh, undermining the Bible, these statements actually serve to strengthen. What would you do if the Gospels all said exactly the same thing? What would we think? Probably that they were copied from one another, right? And so the fact that we have four independent biographies about the person of Jesus is absolutely unbelievable, which is why you see many historians coming to Christ, because we have absolute historical pay dirt in the Gospels. I want to look at one particularly challenging text, because let's say, look, we get that differences are not contradictions. We get that somehow how language is used sometimes. But there are some texts in the Bible that are just particularly challenging. We're going to look at one this morning. How did Judas Iscariot die? Let's see. It depends. Go with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to look at verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field had been called the field of blood to this day. So in Matthew's gospel, Judas brought back his reward and threw it down. He then died by hanging, and then the Jewish council bought the land. Let's see what Luke has to say. Let's turn over now to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We'll start in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those 
who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. So in Luke's account in Acts, he kept his reward. He died by falling and having his entrails spilled out, and then he purchased the field himself. I do not like this. What are we to make of these differences? Most scholars would reconcile it this way, and, and I want to bring this up because there's going to be a, a number of passages as we read the Bible uh, that we at first don't understand how they necessarily go together, and the goal is that you don't be discouraged. Some of them, they just take work, but the reward is great for doing the work. So let's see how we would reconcile Judas's death. Judas died by hanging, as Matthew indicates, and as his body quickly decayed and began to bloat, the rope or tree branch that he hung from broke. And his body fell, bursting open on the land of the potter's field. Now, note that Luke's account in Acts nowhere says that falling headlong is what actually killed Judas. It just says that he fell headlong. It's also important to note that it would be odd for someone to trip and fall, die, if I were to just trip and fall here, and then have all my entrails spill out by such a small, simple trip and fall. So this strongly indicates that Judas was probably hanging up somewhere very high, hanging from a significant height. So Matthew mentions uh, how Judas died, and then Luke gives us the aftermath after it. Now regarding who purchased the land, Matthew's account tells us that when Judas threw back the money, the Jewish council couldn't accept it back into the treasury because it was blood money, but that they took it and purchased land. But whose name did they purchase the land under? Certainly not the Jewish council themselves. It's probably likely that they purchased it under Judas's name. So Luke uses a technique here called compression, where he assigns certain things to certain people because of what was going on. Now, whether this is exactly what happened in this story or not, I think it's an example to show you that just because something may appear to be contradictory, it need not be. My encouragement would be do a little bit of work the reward will be great in the end. The more I've, I've encountered these stories, the more I've, I've pressed in, I see that the Bible continually proves to be true time and time again. Okay, let's move on now to number three. The Bible is not optional. The necessity of Scripture. The Bible is not optional. Grudem gives us this helpful definition. He says, The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character or moral laws. Let's work through each one of these a little bit. What is the Bible not needed for? Well, first of all, the Bible is not needed to know that God exists. I have here in your outline Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Remember when we started off, I said that God has revealed himself to the world primarily in three ways. One, through his Son the second through his creation. This is what the psalmist is getting at here, that God has revealed himself to us through what has been made. What else is the Bible not needed 
4. I'm not going to spend uh, much time on this this morning in the interest of time, but the Bible is not needed for knowing certain things about God's character and his moral law. You remember at the end of uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul gives a long list of immoralities of people that he gave over to their own passions, their own depravity. And then later on in chapter 2, Paul says that the law of God was written where? It was written on their hearts. And so we can know certain things about God's moral requirement of us without actually having the Bible. Well, if the Bible is not needed for knowing that God exists or his moral law, what is the Bible needed for? Very simply, the Bible is needed to know the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not seen in nature, nor is it seen in the moral laws of our hearts. All throughout the Bible, we see explicit statements that show that salvation is found only through faith in Jesus Christ. If you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 10. We see a really good example showing us the necessity of the word of God. Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 13. Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so this is, this is Paul's argument here. To be saved, one must call in the name of the Lord. In the context here, this is Christ. To call on Christ, one must believe in Christ. To believe in Christ, one must hear of Christ. To hear of Christ, there must be a preacher preaching the word of Christ. Paul's conclusion, for one to call on Christ, there must be someone preaching. I can tell you that this one is actually challenging for me. Why? I, I love the idea of witnessing in a sense of, I'm just going to be really nice to my neighbors. I'm going to be really, really nice to my coworkers. And as a result of my just extreme kindness, they're going to devote themselves to Christ. Unfortunately, that, that just never seems to happen. And what will end up happening tragically is that these people will go to hell still thinking I'm the nicest person in the world. Maybe. Maybe they don't think that I'm, I'm very nice. But the key here is our, our kindness. Now, is there, is there something to the way that we act and behave, of course, right? That they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, certainly. But in order to be reconciled with God, the one way to do that is only through Christ. And the only way to hear of Christ is through the preaching of the word. And so the, the scripture is absolutely necessary for showing us the good news of how man can be reconciled with God. That's why Paul says, it is sweet. It is the, the, it's sweet of the feet of those who bring the good news. Because if you didn't, how else would they have heard? Most Christians, I think, would agree that Scripture is necessary, that it's, that it's needed. I think that they would question whether or not we need something else. Is something else needed, or is what's contained in the Bible fully adequate and sufficient? And this takes us to our, our last point here. Number four, when the Bible speaks, it is always enough. This is the sufficiency of the Scripture. Grudem tells us that the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God needed for salvation. 
for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly. I would summarize it this way. The sufficiency of scripture means that the Bible contains everything that God would have us do and believe. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? So often, God, what would you have me do? What are we to believe? The Bible contains everything that God would require us to do and believe. I want to look at one passage, and we're going to return to 2 Timothy chapter 3 to finish off this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to back up to verse 15. Paul's telling Timothy, he says, How from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Now, this is incredible. What Paul is telling Timothy is the sacred writings he's referring to here is the Old Testament. And Paul's telling Timothy the sacred writings of the Old Testament are sufficient in and of themselves for faith in Christ. That you don't even need the New Testament. God has given us that to interpret for us the events of the New Covenant. But Paul tells Timothy the Old Testament was adequate for faith in Christ. Grudem says on page 152, This is an indication that the words of God that we have in Scripture are all the words of God we need in order to be saved. These words are able to make us wise for salvation. Continuing on in verse 16, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Because the scripture has its source in God, because it is breathed out by God, it is profitable. It is useful for teaching, for teaching us doctrine, for reproof. As we get off, it tells us where we've gone astray. For correction, it brings us back and for training in righteousness. All for this reason. So that the man of God, does it say, may be lacking in something? Does it say that we'll, we'll need something else? Does it say that something else is required? No, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There's nothing outside of the scripture that God would have us do or believe. See, the context here is that Paul's about to depart from Timothy. And there's some sense that Timothy is a little worried that once Paul leaves, he's not going to be prepared or adequate to pastor the church that he was pastoring in Ephesus. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you have far more than anything I could have ever given you. You have the very words of God himself. You will be fully equipped, Timothy. You'll be fully equipped not only in your own life, but you'll be fully equipped to equip those that God has entrusted to you. Grudem on this writes on page 153, the truth of the sufficiency of scripture is of great significance for our Christian lives. It enables us to focus our search for God's word to us in the Bible alone, and it saves us from the endless task of searching through all the writings of Christians throughout history, all the teachings of the church, all the subjective feelings and impressions that come to our mind from day to day in order to find what God required of us. Just to close with with one thought, God in the Bible has given us His word, which is breathed out by him, it is fully authoritative, it is fully binding, it is all-sufficient. But we don't reap the benefits of it unless we do what? 
unless we apply it and unless we read it. I can often think because I've got a really nice old Bible on my nightstand that through some process of osmosis, I'm going to reap the benefits because it's close to my right shoulder. Not at all. We need to be like the psalmist that meditates day and night. And even reading your Bible for a week and then taking a break, you're simply not going to reap the benefits. To get the benefits of his all-sufficient word, we have to spend time day after day after day, and the reward will be great. Will it not? Great. All right. Thank you guys so much. Have a great Sunday.